We have been working our way through a series of messages entitled, The Cross from Christ's Perspective. And what we're looking at is we are looking at the crucifixion of Christ, and we're looking at it through the lens of what He would have seen, observed, and experienced from His perspective. Uh, We looked back in, in, in the very beginning of this study, And Jesus uh, talked about the fact that he would lay down his life uh, for us, and he did. He's laying his life down. John 10 says that no one has taken his life from him. He is doing this on his own, and he's doing it in order to purchase our pardon and to bring us uh, into the family of God. The Bible does say uh, and mentions that he is talking from the aspect of a cup. Uh, You remember he said to the disciples, Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? And indeed, he said, you are not able. It's not that you don't have permission. You don't have the ability or the capacity to go to the places that I'm getting ready to go and to endure the things that I'm getting ready to endure. You don't qualify for those things. It's in his humanity that in the garden, and perhaps even related and connected specifically to what we're going to talk about today, that Jesus prayed, Father, with sweats, drops of blood, let this cup pass from uh, me. Jesus knew full well the elements of the cup that he would drink. He knew full well and he embraced the drinking of the cup before the foundation of the world was in place. And now in history, in time, the fulfillment of God's plan was coming and Christ was drinking the cup that he said in John's gospel that the Father had given him to drink. So we've already seen that part of that cup is, of course, the physical suffering. Uh, We have looked briefly at the beatings and the scourgings um, and the the physical side of uh, the crucifixion. And certainly that was uh, bad enough. What we also saw that Jesus endured was the full arsenal of Satan's authority. Because it was the God-granted hour of the power of the darkness, according to Luke chapter 22, verse 53. And not to minimize the physical suffering, not to minimize how horrendous and horrific it was, but far beyond the physical suffering would be the spiritual realities and the spiritual suffering that we have studied uh, in these recent weeks, mainly being the first cup, uh, the full arsenal of Satan's authority. Christ was on the cross for six hours. Three hours he was in the light, three hours he was in the dark. We now understand what the darkness was over the cross. We spent the last two weeks talking about the darkness came and the darkness departed. And we talked about God being present within the darkness, not to comfort Christ, but to pour out his full wrath on His Son, not for His sin, but for ours. 
1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 says that He Himself bore our sins on the tree. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says that God made Him who knew no sin to become sin for us. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6 says, The Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all, and all of that took place on Christ on the cross, three hours in the light, bearing the full arsenal of Satan's attack, three hours in the dark, bearing the full wrath of God. And those messages are available online if you'd like to go back and look at those and study them. And we have seen that these elements are increasing um, in devastation. Still, I know to put it. What we're going to look at today is to be perfectly honest with you, the one that has the least amount of details, I believe it involves the greatest amount of suffering, and I believe it's the one, and I'll show you why in just a minute, it's the one which finalizes the completion of the marring of the appearance of Christ. You remember in Isaiah chapter 52, the Bible says that He was marred uh, beyond human recognition more than the appearance of anyone has ever. So right there in place, three men were crucified. The two thieves on His left and on His right, they were hung on the cross, bloody, beaten, and crucified, and came down looking so, even though one by all t- testimony of Scripture, would, would be um, uh, in hell and the other would be in paradise with Christ. Both of them, regardless of their eternal destinies, came down from the cross looking like men. But there in the midst of those two was the Son of Man, God Himself, and there in the presence of all, His visage, His appearance would be morphed and changed and formed, deformed beyond human recognition that the Bible says that men would beat their breast considering the things that they had just experienced. Certainly the brutal beatings would bring that about. Certainly the full arsenal of Satan would bring that about. Certainly the full wrath of God would add to that and His body would begin to form. But it's at this last element, the ninth hour, the sixth hour on the cross, the ninth hour in terms of counting time. And only in this capacity... As the darkness departs, does Jesus scream out in agony. In other words, He was speaking in the light. He was completely silent as His lamb led to the slaughter in the darkness. The darkness departs and He screams out in agony. And not only does he scream and scream out in agony, it's what he screams that we consider for our time in the study of God's Word today. Matthew chapter 27, 
verse 45, the Bible says, Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? This forsaking and what takes place at this particular time on the cross that happens in conjunction with the departing of the darkness is the third and the final element that we see Christ endured on the cross. It would by far be the most horrific uh, physically that would mar His body, but even more so, it's the most horrific uh, spiritually as this experience happens there on the cross in front of uh, the people watching. What is this that happened and took place? We know from our studies in past weeks that the darkness was the presence of God, the presence of God coming to the cross. God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. I'm not saying that God is darkness. God in campus, He encapsulated Himself in darkness as He made His appearance at the cross and poured out His full wrath on His Son. So when the darkness was departing is when Christ was screaming out in agony. It wasn't the presence of God that caused Him to scream out. It was the absence. It was the removal. It was the separation from God that caused this third element of the cup that Christ had to endure to be drunk, to mar His body. I want us to think about this separation that took place between the Father and the Son that caused Jesus to cry out in agony. I want to say, first of all, that Jesus experienced a fellowship with God that you and I have no possible way of imagining. You know, for example, when you've been with someone for a very, very long time, uh, with a spouse perhaps, and your spouse dies, even in our fallen, broken world, in our sinfulness, we have this grieving, this longing that takes place there. Imagine, if you will, the fellowship between God the Father and God the Son from eternity past. And imagine this communion, this fellowship being together in such a way that did not involve sin, that did not involve disappointments, that did not involve brokenness and did not involve scars. Imagine the perfect sinless fellowship between the Father and the Son. When Jesus came to this earth, He still stayed in constant fellowship with God, did He not? 
Mark 1.35 says that a great while before dawn that Jesus was up and he was praying. There were many times that scripture records that he got away from the people and spent all evening praying in fellowship with the Father. It was this longing in the heart of Jesus that, that, that Jesus even prayed in John chapter 17 verse 15 that he was looking forward to being reunited with the Father in glory. John chapter 17 verse 5, Jesus prayed, Now Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Jesus longed to be reunited perfectly with God in that glory, in the full fellowship of that glory, even though he was in perfect fellowship with God on this earth. Because being 100% God, 100% man, he obeyed every law of God. He fulfilled every, every mission that God gave him to do. He was the perfect example that you and I can never be. There was never a time that God would withhold love from him. There was never a time that God would not answer his prayer. There was never a time that God would not move on his behalf. There was never a time that Jesus had a need being in fellowship with God, even being separated from the presence of God on this earth in terms of the manifest presence together in all of eternity, separated on earth for Jesus to fulfill the mission that Jesus was ever out of fellowship with God or separated from him. I don't know how you envision heaven, but beloved, if your vision of heaven does not include being face to face in the presence of God, then you're missing out on what heaven really is. If you could go to heaven and enjoy heaven without the presence of God, you misunderstand what heaven is altogether. In fact, heaven is like, would be, uh, I, I guess, as one writer said I read this week, would be like an amusement park filled with children's rides without the presence of God. It would be fun and it would be neat, but it would get old quick. You think about heaven, what, when the first thing you think about heaven, what's the first thing you think about heaven that comes to mind is, right, we'll be living in mansions or these dwelling places that God has prepared. We'll be walking on streets of gold. We're going to be doing all, seeing all of these things. It's going to be perfect. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be all these things. Think about the fact of what everybody tries to compare heaven with here. And it's never a relationship with the person. It's always a description of a place. Mm. They go and stand on the ocean and say, this is what heaven must look like. They stand on the edge of Grand Canyon. This is what heaven must be like. They look at gold and think about streets of gold and think, this is what heaven must be like. Friends, heaven is only heaven because we're in the presence of God continually. We need to change our understanding of what heaven is. All of those things are true. And all of those things are going to be good. But I can promise you the thing about heaven is that you're going to be in the presence of God, in the absence of sin, and enjoyed unhindered fellowship with Christ. You're never going to have to wonder what does God think about this? What is God's will for this? You're never going to have to struggle with sin. You're never going to do all those things. 
Anytime you want to know anything about God, look, He's there. You're in His presence. Even Adam didn't understand that type of fellowship with God before sin entered the world when he and Eve were in the Garden of Eden and though they walked with God in closer fellowship than any of us who have been in sin has ever walked with God. And certainly he would be the only one that would understand what that level of fellowship God from human to God relationship is. And I believe that he spent the rest of his life longing for what he had in the garden. No, not the, not the, the, the garden itself, but the unhindered fellowship with God. And I believe all the days of his life, what he longed for was that type of fellowship. And beloved, when he went to heaven, and when you and I go to heaven, we will have experientially that type of fellowship with God. We have fellowship now. First John tells us that, that we have fellowship with God when we confess our sins. We have fellowship with God because we're part of the body of Christ. But you and I do not yet understand what unhindered fellowship in the presence of God is because we haven't been there. Jesus in John chapter 17, verse 5, He said this, God, not only do I want to be in Your presence with You, but He says, I want to be in the presence of Your glory. Part of what heaven will be is it will be in the, the, the fullness of the doxa, doxa church, in the fullness of the glory of God. Right now, you and I see the glory of God dimly. You and I see the glory of God veiled. God on occasion chooses to reveal some aspects of His glory, but we have not seen the full glory of God. Even when God passed by and showed Moses His glory, He put him in the cleft of the rock and He hid His eyes because Moses could not endure the full glory of God. So it was unlimited. It was just a glimpse of the glory of God. When Peter, James, and John, they went up on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus and He pulled back the veil of His flesh and revealed His glory, He did not reveal His glory in the totality of its capacity because the Bible says in Psalm 19.1, the heavens, plural, declare the glory of God. And so all of the glory of God that is contained in all of the creation of all the heavens and all the earth, whatever that is, whatever the heavens, whatever the earth is, the heavens declare the glory of God. Jesus longed to be back with God in the fellowship of His glory. And so heaven will not only be us in the presence of God, but it will be in the presence of God's glory. So if heaven is to be in the presence of God and to be in the midst of His unfiltered glory in such a way that the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, 
right? That, that He, even our trials and tribulations, are storing up for us a glory to be revealed in the days to come. We, we must understand heaven to be the presence of God in the place that God has prepared in the fullness of His glory. Let me say it again. Heaven is the person. It's being in relationship with God. It's being in the presence of God in the place that He has prepared in the fullness of His glory. And if we understand that that's what heaven is, then perhaps we need to rethink or think deeply about hell and what hell is. When people think about hell, oftentimes they think that hell is a place that they're going to be tormented by the devil. They think of this evil figure with a pitchfork tail um, running around and jabbing everybody and causing as much pain and torture uh, in the flames as possible. The Scripture nowhere, nowhere affirms that truth at all that Satan is in charge or regulating there. In fact, it says that hell was, was prepared for Satan to be tormented and to be tortured forever and ever. The Bible does say that hell and affirms the truth in Mark chapter 9, verse 43 to 49, that there will be flames of fire in hell. So Mark, Mark 9, 43, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than having two hands go into hell and listen to this description into the unquenchable fire where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. He goes on to say that if your foot causes you to stumble, it's better to enter through life maimed than having your two feet to be cast into hell. It's better to have pluck out your own eye that causes you to sin than to have two eyes to be cast into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. The Bible affirms that hell will be a physical place, will be fire. But it also describes hell. And by the way, Jesus is the one talking about this. And Jesus talks more about hell than He does heaven. So if you're going to believe what Jesus says about heaven, then you have to believe what Jesus says about hell. And in Matthew chapter 8, verse 12... And in Matthew chapter 22, verse 13, and Matthew chapter 25, verse 30, he describes hell as the outer darkness. Matthew chapter 8, verse 12, listen to the 
the Word of God. Matthew 8. 12. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So that leads to this question, how can hell be flames... And how can it be the lake of fire Revelation talks about? And how can the Bible, specifically Jesus on three occasions, say that it's outer darkness? In fact, literally in the Greek, there's the word the. It's not just the outer darkness. It's the outer the darkness. In other words, it is double definitive article. The, the outer darkness. It is a specific outer darkness where they will go. And the answer is, quite frankly, I don't know. I don't know how there can be flames and I don't know how there can be outer darkness, but both realities are absolutely uh, true. Some have tried to bring those two together and say it's one thing to see a fiery flame consuming things, roaring fire. It's another thing even more scary altogether to experience burns in places you can't, in ways you can't see the flames. But the Bible affirms both of those things. And in, in all of these, Matthew chapter 8, Matthew 22, Matthew 25, He says that they will go into, literally the word is into this place. There is a place that God has created called hell. And in that place, there are flames. And in that place, there is outer darkness and this place, listen to me, beloved, this place is a prepared place. Matthew chapter 25, verse 41 says that it is a place prepared for Satan and his demons. And I would just simply remind you that the same word there for prepare in Matthew chapter 25, verse 41 to describe the place of eternal torment and punishment is the exact same word prepare that Jesus used when he comforted his disciples before the crucifixion where he says, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. Again, describing heaven as a place and as a person. I go that where I am, there you may be also. What makes heaven heaven? Not just the place, but the presence of God. What makes hell hell is it is a prepared place with fire in the outer darkness but so much of our study so much of our study as it relates to the cross has um, has been the physical part is horrendic, horrendous it is horrific and it is unbearable and unfathomable and unimaginable to, to our eyes and something beyond our ability to uh, comprehend and over and over and over, what we have seen is the spiritual realities and the descriptions are far beyond even what we could grasp with our thinking and understand. That's true about heaven. And beloved, that's true about hell. What, what, what do I mean by that? Well... 
yes, it, Matthew 25, 41, it is a prepared place. It is a location. Listen to Revelation chapter 14, verse 10. Revelation 14, 10. We talked about this verse before. If anyone worships the beast in his image, and he has received the mark on his forehead or on his hand, verse 10, Revelation 14, 10, he will also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone. Now listen to this. He will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. God is omnipresent. That means He's everywhere all at the same time. There are places we've seen like at the cross and in Ezekiel and other places in Scripture where God's manifest presence comes together in a place. But even in God's manifest presence, His omnipresence is not removed. And even in hell, there will be tormenting. The Bible says, in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of God. And yet when I think about that, now, now, why is that important? I think it's important because if God is the judge and He is, then it would only be right for the judge who gives the judgment to see that it's carried out in fullness. Exactly is the way that He ordered it and so it's only fair if you would want to bring the fair language in there I don't bring it into my house right I don't ever hear my kids say that's not fair oh my children you don't want what's fair you want grace and you want mercy you don't want fairness you don't want fairness and neither do I we didn't do this thing, get by all the kids the same thing, spend the same amount of money. No, no, they're going to get their turn. Time's going to come around. It's going to happen. But we just didn't do that in our family. But in order for a righteous judge who condemns to bring about the punishment, it is up to him to see this carried out. And according to Revelation 10, it is done in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of God. And so somewhere... In your understanding and definition of hell, it's got to include the presence of God. It's got to include fires. It's got to include torment. It's got to include outer darkness. All of these things we've got to put together. But probably the most telling description from the person experiencing it is found in 2 Thessalonians. Look in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. Second Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 9 probably has the worst <coughs> description of what hell will be like from the person of the one being tormented. And it's in such a way that you and I cannot grasp at all what it's even talking about. But the Bible says that it is. Look with me, if you would, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. Speaking of unbelievers, he says this, 
these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. Now I want you to think about this for just a moment. Away from the presence of the Lord and we don't stop there from the glory of His power. Those are, those are two descriptions of that you've got to include. You've got to include in your understanding, in your thinking about hell. The torment of hell happens in the presence of God, but from the person, and it happens, right, in a way that brings God glory. I don't understand that, but the heavens declare the glory of God. The ferment shows His handiwork. God gets glory when His Word is fulfilled that says that sinners go to hell. God doesn't separate sin from the sinner. God knows nothing about love the sinner, hate the sin. God judges the sinner because of his sin, and he judges them in, the, in his presence, and from their perspective, it's in his absence. Well, how can it be that? How can it be in His presence and in His absence at the same time? How can His glory fill everything that there is about God? How can His glory be there? And yet these will be tormented away from the presence of His glory. I can't answer that question any more than I can answer the question of how will it be fire and darkness at the same time? I don't know. I'm just affirming what the Bible says. And my understanding then is this, that the hell will take place in... The presence of God in the presence of the power of His glory. But from the person of the one receiving the torment in their experience, there will be a complete absence of God and a complete absence of his glory. So what makes heaven heaven is that there's a place and there's a person, Christ, and there's His glory. And beloved, what makes hell hell is there is a place equally prepared that in some way, somehow, when God prepared, He created this place. He created this place by removing His presence and removing His glory, which is why some scholars say where the fire and the darkness come from. away from the presence of the Lord and away from the glory of His power. So when you think about hell, you take away love, you take away goodness, you take away joy, peace, hope, you take all those things away. There's no place in hell for those things. You add the flames of torment in the lake of fire. You add the outer darkness. You add all of that together. And if that's not enough, we get a wall in our thinking when we begin to think, 
you add to your definition of hell the separation from the presence of the Lord and away from the glory of His power. And that is... I hate to say the epic, the pinnacle, the climax of hell that goes beyond the physical torture is removal of God's presence and removal of His glory. What makes hell, hell? Many people have died in horrific fires. Many people have died alone in darkness, though not outer darkness as described here. Many people, and however you could possibly imagine physically that you'd be afraid to die in that horrendous, horrific way in whatever it is, we all pray that if we die, we die quickly. They go to this place, they never die. They just experience this torment forever and ever and ever. And you take away that while you're going through that, you still have hope that rescue's coming. You have hope that you're going to be in the presence of God. You have hope, whatever you have, right? How many times have you heard the things that you've gone through that have been most devastating in your life? God overwhelmed you with a sense of His peace, which passes all understanding. Can you imagine being in the physical place of hell without love, without goodness, without joy, without peace, without hope? And you add to that the flames of torment. Do you add to that being in the lake of fire? And you add to your definition of hell, separation from the presence of God and away from His glory. Nothing. Nothing. Our, our mind, we can't, we can't grasp and understand what that is. But let me add to this also. We don't go to heaven in our bodies. We go to heaven in a body that's been prepared for us. The Bible calls it our glorified bodies. It is a body, and I don't understand this. I don't, I don't know how it's going to work, and I can't imagine how great it's going to be, but it's going to be a body that we're going to be able to be in the presence of the fullness of God and in the presence of His glory and not be consumed. I mean, think about that. I know you're thinking about ideal weight, eat all these calories, not put on weight, and all, right? I understand no sickness. I get all that. I get all that. I'm with you there. Amen. <laughs> But beyond that, your glorified body will allow you to withstand the presence of God in heaven and the presence of the fullness of His glory. Your body will be a prepared body given to you to endure heaven in its fullness. And the Bible says that those who are dead will be raised to receive their bodies so they will be able to endure Eternal torment forever and ever and ever away from the presence of the Lord and away from His glory. The Bible says in Revelation, even in the physical side, that men are crying for rocks to fall on them and die and mountains to collapse on them physically that they would die. And yet it doesn't happen. How much more so will it be in the torment of hell that men and women will call out for God to destroy them, to annihilate them, and to completely obliterate them so that they no longer experience and 
And yet they have a body that enables them to endure hell forever and ever and ever. They have a prepared body before. I don't know if you've ever thought about that before. No wonder when Paul was talking in Romans chapter 8 as we read earlier, he says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall all these things, shall nakedness, and shall neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created being will be able to separate us from the love of God. Hang on to that truth. And go with me to the cross. Matthew 27. In a way that I don't understand, and quite frankly, I don't even have the language to give you. With that understanding, look now at what Christ endured on the cross when it said from the sixth hour darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour and we know that yes God is omnipresent but he made his manifest present and yes he was pouring out his wrath on the son of God and yes it was horrific and yes I can't even comprehend what that would what that would be like and yet, he's, he's bearing the full wrath of God in the presence of God. And once he has endured the full wrath of God in full measure, in a way that I can't even put into verbal words, as the darkness departs, the presence of God is removed from the cross in some way, shape, or form, in a way that I don't understand, Jesus experienced hell on the cross, being separation from God and the separation from the presence of His glory. It caused Him to scream out in untold agony, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Beloved, the difference between the hell that lost people face today in its her and I, 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 whatever the the comparative word for most horrendous is they will experience the absence of God and the absence of their glory in a body prepared to endure it and there on the cross being fully God and fully man in human form, he experienced the removal of the presence of God and the removal of his glory for an instant. Beloved, did you hear that? For an instant and in this place, in this capacity, far beyond the marring of his body from the physical and far beyond the marring of the body from Satan's arsenal and far from the marring of the body, from the full wrath of God, 
his form would have become unrecognizable as he experienced the separation of God while there hanging on the cross. And all he can do is scream out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus, Jesus experienced separation from God on the cross. I close with this. The Apostle Paul gave his heart and life to witnessing and planting churches, particularly among the Jews. And he gave his heart. He wanted people to be saved. And he wanted them to experience the fullness of the presence of God in his glory. And even the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 9, he says, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. And this is over lost people. And here's what he says, Romans 9.3, For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ, for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption of sons, and the glory and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple services and the promises, who are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh, who is all over. God bless forever. Amen. In other words, he says they have everything and yet reject Christ. And his heart is so broken over their rejection of Christ that he himself, in a way that's not possible to do, says, oh, that it would be possible that I would be accursed, separated from Christ so that others would come. Beloved, listen to me. If you truly understand what hell is, you don't want your worst enemy to go there. And if you truly fathom this, you would long for God to get more glory through lots of others if it would be possible to give yourself your own salvation away so that they might experience it, which is, this is hypothetical. It's impossible. It's hyperbole. It could never happen. But this is what he's saying. Some way Christ endured the cross. Separation from God in a way they don't understand. And at this point, he says a few other things and says, It is finished. What are the lessons that we take with us from this particular study? Let me give you four of them. These are not original with me, but when I read them, it just. Um, it captured what I would want to say. And I'm just going to share these with you. These are four conclusions after you study the cross. It's not enough just to see Christ who He is and to be thankful and appreciative of what He endured. But these four things I hope would be true for me in my life and true for you in your life. Number one, now from here on out, may we see what sin is and learn to hate it. When you think about Christ on the cross and the price that He paid for our sin, may you and I see what sin is and learn to hate it.
Number two, may you and I see what hell is and learn to flee it, leading others to flee it as well. See what hell is and learn to flee it. See what sin is and learn to hate it. Number two, see what hell is and learn to flee it. Number three, see what love is and learn to enjoy it. Oh, isn't that good? What greater love is this that a man would lay down his life for you? No greater love. No greater love. I would remind you the reason he endured all of those things was out of obedience to Father. But one of the blessings and benefits of him enduring that is that we get to be part of the part of the, the family of God and we get to experience the love of God in unbelievably amazing ways in loves that we've never experienced from another human person or even our favorite animal, our favorite dog that just thinks we're God, we're not, right? But our dogs think that we are. If you have them, cats don't cats think they're gods. That's different. <laughs> but learn what love is and learn to enjoy it. Beloved, enjoy being loved by God. Understand He loves you with the highest, greatest amount of love. His love doesn't change. His love doesn't fluctuate for you. He never withholds His love for you. He loves you with an unending, everlasting love that never changes, that never fluctuates, that never goes away. He just loves you. Learn to enjoy it. And then finally, see what faith is. See what faith is and learn to use it. Something I still haven't got over, and I've studied this for years, but something I've still not gotten over is when Jesus is on the cross and He's experiencing the separation, He doesn't simply say, why have you forsaken me? He says, my God, and my God. Can you imagine that? Uh, just let that sink in. There he is experiencing the cross of the just completed the full wrath of God and during the separation. And yet he still says, My God, my God. The reason I think about that is the number of people I know that stump their toe <laughs> in rejecting, denying, take his name in vain. God, God, right? God blesses you with his absence because he trusts you in the relationship to keep doing what you're doing without, right? It's like I've told you this before it's like learning to ride a bicycle. When I was learning to ride a bicycle, there were two things that taught me to learn a bicycle. My dad's strong hand on the seat and his strong hand on my shoulder. And as long as I knew that he had the hand on the seat and the hand on the shoulder, I knew that I could ride that bicycle. But the way that I would get greater enjoyment is not feeling my dad's seat on the seat and shoulder. It's when he let me go. 
When I'm young, it's about the hands of God. It's about knowing that God's there. It's about knowing the will of God. It's about being sure that I'm right with God. It's feeling God's absolutely approving presence on my life. But as I mature and grow, there are seasons of my life that God entrusts me with His absence. He entrusts me with darkness. Not that He's removed. He's just not, he's just not doing this. He's letting me enjoy what it means to walk with God and to walk with Christ. And just like I look back and said, Dad, where are you? Where are you? When he let me go. And he's laughing at me, wobbling and falling down the hill. He was there. Beloved, God is there with us even in those times when we wonder, God, where are you in the midst of this? And we don't take His name in vain. We don't use it flippantly. Jesus said, My God, my God, and he enjoyed immediately after this the few things the presence of God again in its fullness. Beloved, your life and my life is but a vapor. We're here today and we're going tomorrow. And as believers, we're going to be in the presence of God forever. So even if you feel like His active hand is not upon you, it is. His presence is with you. He is maintaining you. He is sustaining you. He is loving you. He's giving you hope, joy, peace, patience, goodness, faithfulness. All of these things that He is doing for you. He is sustaining you and maintaining you in all of these things. And even when you come to a trial in your life, you say, God, where are you? He is there. See what faith is and learn to use it. And beloved, I would just simply add this. I hope you see the lost with greater clarity of their demise and destruction which they are going to endure and encounter. And I pray, beloved, that you and I will not be content to sit to be satisfied to let them go there without us hounding them to give their heart to Christ, to repent of their sins, and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. May no dizziness, may no boundary, may no brokenness keep us from doing all we can to get the gospel to lost people. And beloved, it may be that even here today that there is someone who doesn't know Christ as Savior and Lord. It would be a tragedy of disproportional means for you to leave here today having understood clearly the path that's before you apart from Christ and not give you an opportunity to be confident, to be sure that you've repented of your sins, believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, and are in a right saving relationship with Him. And that if He were to snuff your life out today, that you would be with Him in His presence, in the power of His glory, in a place that He has prepared forever and ever and ever. And if there's any questions or doubts about that, beloved, today, the Bible says, is the day of salvation. Do not leave here today without knowing for certain that you know God. It doesn't happen through walking an aisle, shaking a patch hand, or filling out a card. It comes from you pouring out your heart to Christ and asking Him to save you and receiving the free gift of salvation by faith. And we'll be glad to help you do that at the close of our time together today. Let's stand for prayer.
our Heavenly Father, we are so thankful, Lord, for how much You love us and how much You have redeemed us, how You've redeemed us, the price that You've paid for us. Father, we can't truly imagine what, what heaven's going to be like. And we certainly can't imagine what hell's going to be like. Father, I pray that we will grasp in some small measure, some small way, an understanding of, of that and that we would live our lives eternally for Your glory. Father, I thank You for Jesus and I thank You for how much He loves us. I thank You for the love that He demonstrates, uh, that He demonstrates that, that to us and that we can receive the blessings of it. God, be honored by our worship and even more so empower our lives to live for Your glory. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.